I don't think we could ever accuse Paul of praying small prayers. Our focus this morning is on verses 9 to 11, where he prays that the love of the Philippians would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. You can pick up the adjectives that he's using there. That you may approve what is best or excellent, filled with the fruit of righteousness. No small prayers. Uh, across my inbox this week, had an article from a fellow called Stephen McAlpine. We might have heard from him a couple of times in the past from myself or Brian Cox. He's a writer and consultant for churches and Christian schools across Australia. He wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition, um, adapted from his book uh, called How Do We Future-Proof the Church? How Do We Future-Proof the Church? Sometimes it's just the title that gets your attention, isn't it? Uh, he, he used a bit of, if you're uh, an 80s fan of Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future, he used a little bit of that to try to get us into the article. But he wrote this. Despite the various pressure points, ecological threats, technological changes, polarising effects of post-Christian societies, looking for new and often contradictory sources of meaning, we, the church, must hold our nerve and in holding our nerve, we must double down on the things we know are true and the ways of life that have done well for us so far. We must put into the bank, so to speak, the communal, moral, theological, relational and intellectual credit that we'll need in 2054, 30 years in the future, should this cultural trajectory continue. So, he says, it's a call to the church, let's determine to put time and energy into building resilient churches. Have a listen to how he encourages us to do that. To building resilient churches that take forgiveness seriously in a cancel culture. Churches which practice a deep community as more and more people live alone. Churches that offer costly generosity in an era that worships self-care and which discern how to navigate a culture given over to technique and technology when it comes to sex and the body. Deep community, forgiveness, costly generosity and discernment. At the very time it feels safer to dial down our faith, in the public square especially, and to put our hope and interests into our panelled houses, a reference from Haggai, a deeper and stronger Christianity is the answer. Now, I encourage you to go and read the whole article. You can look it up on the Gospel Coalition website and just look up Stephen McAlpine or Future Proofing the Church. You'll find it because there's some context there and the way he writes makes it a little bit more clear than just that section. But some of those things that he's calling us to, to future-proof the church, and I don't think he's saying it's all up to us. <clears throat> I'll explain that in a minute. Things like forgiveness, <clears throat> sorry, Deep community, costly generosity and discernment actually sound a lot like what Paul prays for in this passage. That our love would abound with knowledge and discernment. That we would be pure and blameless and filled with the fruit of righteousness. They're actually the very basics of the Christian gospel and faith and life, aren't they? So if we want to future-proof the church, it's back to basics. It's never been any different, actually. 
That's Paul's prayer and it should be our prayer. Last week, as we started our series through Philippians, we heard how Paul uh, came to Philippi. We read from Acts 15 and 16 and how the church there was established. We heard how Paul has a very unique and close relationship with these believers, these saints in Philippi. They, most likely the first church he established, he has a very special relationship with them, a partnership in the gospel. Uh, They supported him when others didn't. They've stuck by him, both spiritually in prayer, but practically in support with gifts and provisions, such that he holds them dearly in his heart and yearns for them with with the very affection of Christ, we read. And because of that, he gives thanks to God for them. We heard that last week. And in particular, for the fruit of God's grace in their lives that Paul himself has been a recipient of. And so he prays with joy and confidence. And as we focused last week, he is sure, he says of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He's got great confidence for the future of the church, hasn't he? God doesn't leave a job undone. We may all be works in progress. We've got a bit of roadworks happening between here and home at the moment. And during the week, it's a bit of a slow trek sometimes. Always works in progress. But God will finish what he's begun. And friends, we too have partaken in the same grace as Paul and the Philippians. So we too can have that same joy and the same confidence that God is working in us and will complete that work he's begun in us. But as we touched on last week, sometimes confidence can lead to arrogance, can't it? Sometimes being so sure of things can lead us to pride and self-assurance. But that's not the case here. That should never be the case when it comes to the gospel and to the gifts of God, because it's all gift. It's all from God. It's his grace to us. There's no room for boasting. There's no place for arrogance or pride. Only humble thanksgiving. Which Paul begins with, with his prayer of thanks. And then he goes on to pray so that there might be an ongoing dependence upon God. Yes, he started this work and he's going to finish it. That doesn't mean we sit back and do nothing. It means we go on in faith and hope and love, praying and depending upon God for all things who Paul says at the end of this letter, he is sure, again, that God will supply every need of theirs according to his glory, the riches of his glory. Great confidence, but no small prayers because of that confidence. In fact, far from God's grace and the confidence we have in him leading to arrogance or pride or presumption, the grace of God and that confidence we have should lead us to prayer just as it does for Paul. He begins this letter, as we said last week, with thanksgiving and that sure statement that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And then he prays some more, the focus for our message this morning. Paul knows that only God can do what he's asking of here. That's what prayer is, isn't it? We heard that Wednesday night. When we pray, we're asking God to do things which we cannot do ourselves. Just as it's been only by the grace of God that these Philippians have been saved, Paul knows it's only by grace that they'll be saved in the end. And it's only by grace that everything that happens in between will take place as well. As they grow in faith and hope and love. And so Paul prays from verse 9. He prays that their love might grow. 
that they might abound, that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment or insight so that, so this love actually has, a, has an end, it's got a goal, this prayer, so that they might approve what is excellent or what is best and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. All of that <clears throat> so that they can get a big head and puff up their spiritual egos? No. All of that to the glory and praise of God. And I'll let you in on a little secret, which is not that much of a secret because I'm pretty sure I mentioned it last year. But those few verses have been my prayer for us as a church since the middle of last year. That our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that we, as a church, personally, corporately, as Rex has just led us, might actually be able to approve what is excellent, what is best, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That we would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And I ask you, as we go through this series, would you join me in that prayer for the next few months for one another? Open up your Bibles each morning, each week. And pray, Philippians 1, 9 to 11, for us as a church. There's plenty of prayers we could pray, many in Paul's, um, I've got a whole book here of Paul's letters. There's plenty of prayers in the Psalms and Jesus' teaching. But let me tell you why this prayer in particular has been on my heart and on my lips for us these past few months. Firstly, love. That our love would abound more and more. Not because there's no love here. Just like there's not because there's no love in the Philippians. Paul's been a recipient of their love in a big way. There's plenty of evidence of love here in this church. Prayers for one another, practical help, support and love where there's need. And yet still Paul prays, and so should we, that our love might abound more and more. A love which rejoices together in Christ. A love which mourns together in Christ. A love which has no self-interest or self-preservation. But a love which is even willing to lay down our lives for one another. As we'll read later in Philippians, that almost took place. Not because the future of the church depends on us and our love for one another. And I don't think that's what McAlpine's saying. I'm pretty sure Christ has got the future of the church in his hands. But the way Christ has that in his hands is so often through the ordinary means of people like us, isn't it? And through ordinary things like the faith of the church, the hope of the church, and the love of the church. Because those very basic things, those fundamentals, back to basics, are also the very target of the evil one, aren't they? Destroy the love. Undermine the faith. Squash the hope of the people of God. And they're also the points, I think, of greatest resistance for our own sinful flesh when push comes to shove, aren't they? Sacrificial, costly love. Can there ever be enough love between brothers and sisters in Christ? 
I think sometimes, often, in our well-resourced, affluent, comfortable lives here, we miss out on how important some of the very simple and practical things of love really are. Because we get by pretty well, really, don't we? Love is at the heart of the Christian ethic and the gospel, isn't it? God is love. We're made in his image and restored and being renewed, conformed into the image of Christ. We're to love him with our whole heart, mind, soul and strength and to love our neighbours as ourselves. And so I don't think we can go wrong asking the Lord that our love would abound more and more for one another and for him. But there's another reason why I think we can pray for our love to abound. And whether it's in Paul's mind or not, it came to my mind. And that is something Jesus teaches in the Gospels. He who is forgiven little, loves little. She who loves much, is forgiven much. Our love for God and our love for one another will only abound as we recognise and grow in our understanding of God's forgiveness of our sins. Just how much we've been forgiven. Show me a marriage where love has dwindled and gone cold, and I'll show you a marriage where grace and forgiveness are struggling to flow. Because love cannot flow between two people, two sinners, if they don't know the grace of God and extend that same grace and forgiveness to one another. And instead, there's a whole lot of baggage, isn't there, and obstacles that get in the way. If we don't know the full forgiveness of Christ, we won't forgive one another. Jesus told a parable about that, didn't he? And I think the same can be said for a church. Show me a church where there's a lack of love amongst the people. And that'll be a church that doesn't know the full forgiveness of Christ. Because instead of forgiving others, we'll stand on our own little self-righteousness and say, unless you get it right, I'm not going to extend my love to you. And where would any of us be if that's how Christ related to us? Instead of a church there filled with the fruit of righteousness, I think we'd find a church filled with self-righteousness arrogance and pride, unwilling to admit any faults or failures, reluctant to welcome anyone who doesn't fit their mould, whatever form that might take. And Lord, in your mercy, keep us from that sort of pride and arrogance and self-righteousness and lack of love. There's a situation in the church here in Philippi between two women in chapter 4, Paul mentions it briefly. Two ladies who are disagreeing. There's some argument, there's some faction, we don't know what it's all about. But Paul entreats them to agree, to reconcile in the Lord. And he encourages others in the congregation to help them do that. So he wants this love to abound and he wants it to be practical in their own relating to one another. And we'd be foolish to think that similar things wouldn't happen here, wouldn't we? Little things that get in the way. Big things, maybe. We stop loving. We stop forgiving. And again, we need to hear what Paul says, that our love would abound and that we'd be entreated and encouraged to reconcile in the Lord, if that's the case. I'm not saying it is, but we'd be foolish to think that it's not. 
that we're not open to such an attack and such a situation. Our righteousness that Paul prays for here, that we'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness, you know, it doesn't come from us being right. I think I often thought that. (laughs) My flesh thinks that. No, flesh righteousness doesn't come from being right. It comes from being forgiven, from being justified by the grace of God. And when we know that and when we receive that, then love will flow from us to others. God's love in us, John tells us, will actually be perfected, completed. And so to pray for us as a church, for any church, to pray for one another that our love would abound more and more is effectively to pray that we might know more and more that our sins are forgiven, I think. That's how our love would abound. Paul is also aware, as we read at the end of chapter 1, that there's actually going to be some persecution. If it's not already there, it's on their doorstep for this church in Philippi. They're going to suffer for the sake of Christ. We don't know the sure threat. He doesn't sort of name it quite explicitly. The commentators have their speculation. But when it happens, Paul knows that their love, their unity is going to be tested. Because when trouble comes, (laughs) is it, I'm going to go find my lifeboat and see where you guys, no, or is it, as actually love one another and share in that and encourage one another and remain united. Paul knows all of that's going to be tested. He knows there'll be fractures and factions. He knows that tempers flare up when the pressure's put on and the joy and confidence that they have in Christ might dwindle. It'll be threatened. It might begin to erode. Unless their love abounds. Unless later on, as we hear, they have the same mind as Christ. Unless they stand firm in him and have the same love. And so he prays here, almost as a preventative measure for what's to come, that their love would abound more and more. Not only a feeling or emotion of love, but a practical expression of it, together as God's family. And not just a sense of love, forsaking and not worrying about anything else, but Paul prays here, and I think it's quite interesting, Paul prays that their love would abound, more than interesting, sorry, that's not a good phrase. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Paul's prayer here, I think, is not unlike his prayer in Ephesians 1, where he prays for another church, that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and a revelation in the knowledge of God having the eyes of their hearts enlightened that they might know the hope to which he's called them and the glorious riches and the great power at work. Love with knowledge and discernment. We need that today. Stephen McAlpine's, I think, drawing from something like this or taking us to something like this. How is it any of us actually know God? Where does true knowledge come from? What does it mean for us to have the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God? It's why I had Jeremiah 31 read for us, and some of us heard of it on Wednesday night. That great promise of the new covenant. This is God saying, this is what I'm going to do for my people. This is how the church is future-proofed. I'm going to give them a new heart, and I'm going to write my law on their hearts. And everyone, they will know me. My people will know me. How? Why? 
because I will forgive their sins and remember them no more. How is it we know God? Because he's forgiven us. We know him at the cross. We know him in Christ. We don't just know about him. We know him as Father. Paul puts love and knowledge together because the love of God reveals who he is in all his fullness, in his holiness and in his grace. When you read of knowledge in the scriptures, Old Testament or New, it's not just intellectual knowledge. It's not just stuff you know. In fact, more often than not, it's not that. It's relational knowledge. Like Adam knew Eve and they bore a son. Relational, deep, intimate, relational knowledge. It's knowledge that comes from a covenant relationship with a person. To know God is far more than just about knowing about God. As I said, we know him through the cross. We know him because he forgives our sin. Sin which has separated us from him. Sin which has obstructed our knowledge of him but now sin that he has cast away as far as east is from the west, and he remembers no more. So we can know him. We approach him with confidence. James Packer, a theologian, in answering his own question in his book, Knowing God, not knowing about God, but knowing God, he actually answers the question, how do we turn our knowledge about God into knowledge of God? And he says the answer is demanding, but simple. We turn each truth, each thing that you learn about God, into a matter of meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. So if you know something about God, oh, that's great, good bit of information, put that away in the databank. No, <clears throat> meditate on that, pray on that until it brings you to a point of praise to God for that, what we've learned about him, for who he is, what he's done. <clears throat> and that knowledge then becomes personal and relational. I think it might have been Packer or someone similar who said that the best theology is not just study of God and his word, the best theology leads to doxology. The best knowledge of God leads to praise of God. Because true knowledge of God leads to communion with God. That's how we have knowledge of him. And that goes around a rent cycle. Knowledge of God, communion with God, communion with God means we know him more. And so Paul prays that our love would abound with knowledge, not just good ideas, but relational, covenantal knowledge and discernment. And how important is this for us today? if it was for the Philippians back then, for us as well. Where we're told love is love. Remember back in our Advent series, Brian gave a message about love and how our culture and our world wants to define love or redefine love when actually God is the only one who could ever do that because he is love. And he hasn't just defined it for us, but he demonstrated it. He's met us in Christ on the cross. And so today we need to teach ourselves as adults and we need to teach our children, don't we? <clears throat> How do we love one another in this world? How do we love the world like God did so he sent his son but not love the things of the world? When our children make new friends at school 
and they want to have them over to play or go to their house and you only find out oh, they've got two dads or two mums. How do we love with knowledge and all discernment? That's where knowledge and discernment need to come in, but also love, not fear. How do we teach our children? It's got to be more than just a feeling, doesn't it? It needs the word of God and the will of God. If you're invited to a wedding, which is not biblically grounded, not ordained and blessed by God, how do we express our love? With knowledge and all discernment. Even deciding which neighbour to love. We're told to love our neighbour. But if you choose to love this one and have them over for lunch, you're not choosing to love that one. And have, like, you can't be, all, can't be all things to all people all times, can you? Someone's going to miss out, but it's not a matter of right and wrong. Which I think is why Paul prays, not just that their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, but he prays that so that they might approve what is excellent or what is best. Paul doesn't want any of the saints of Christ to be mediocre. Interesting, isn't it? This is not a mediocre prayer or a half-hearted effort to love that he's praying for. He's praying for excellence. Don Carson, in this book on Paul's prayer, when he's speaking on this one, and regarding this point, he says this, Paul does not pray that their love might abound more and more in ignorance or in sensitivity or in stupidity and ham-fistedness or cheap sentimentality, or myopic nostalgia, he prays rather that their love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. The ever-increasing love for which Paul prays is to be discriminating. It's to be constrained by knowledge and depth of insight, without which love would very easily degenerate into mawkish sentimentality or into a mushy pluralism that the world often confuses with love. Christian love will be accompanied by knowledge. That is, in Paul's use, in the mature grasp of the meaning of the gospel, that is the fruit of sound instruction and full experience. Christian love is also accompanied, literally, by all insight. The all doesn't here respond, uh, signify total insight or depth of insight, but a breadth of insight. That is a moral perception across the entire gamut of life's experiences. And then he goes on to talk about what is best. He says that love shaped and honed by knowledge and moral insight is the absolute requirement for testing and approving what is best or what is vital in this day. He wants us to know not just what's good, what's a little bit better. He wants us to know what's best and to choose then, once that's been tested and approved, to love in that way. And if it's not best, maybe it needs to be put aside. If you've ever had to clear out your house or even just move out of a room to paint or emptied out your car because you're selling it or maybe just your school bag, any rotten bananas found end of January this year, it's worth cleaning out at the end of the year, isn't it? And it's amazing how much stuff you can accumulate, isn't it, in one bag, in your handbag or your 
room or your school bag or your car. There's a whole lot of clutter, isn't there, that we accumulate in life. Stuff we don't really need. Near the end, we'll get to it later on, but Paul exhorts the church in Philippi here. If there's anything, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That's what our knowledge and discernment should be filled with. And all the other stuff we've accumulated, probably time to toss it out. Because it will just clutter our life and our minds and our hearts. Paul says, no, choose what is excellent. Approve what is excellent and let that be the influence and effect of our love and what carries us in love. And don't think I'm preaching here from my lofty heights and perfection in this. I'm not. I need this prayer as much as any of you. Maybe more so. And so Paul goes on, not only regarding what the Philippians need in this life for their love, but for the day of Christ, that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you read just those verses, you might think, well, Paul's getting rid of his jettisoning the whole grace of God here. We need to love and grow in love so that we'd be pure and so that we'd approve what is excellent, so that we'd be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That is, our salvation at the end is all to do with how much we love and how much our knowledge and depth of insight is working out. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying at all. He actually says, even within these verses, filled with the fruit of righteousness, how does that come? Only through Jesus Christ. So he hasn't forgotten about the grace of God at all. But what he's saying here is that which has happened with you internally by the Spirit, that transforming forming work of the Spirit in you that's already happened in Christ, he wants to see that expressed outwardly in our lives. Paul's already received it and he wants to see it grow and abound more and more so that others would see and say they're a different person. Using Paul's language, we're a new creation. The way we think, the way we love, the way we act has been changed because of the grace and love of God towards us in Christ. He wants the fruit of grace that has done that inward work in us to flow out from us. We could use Paul as our own example, his own example. He knows the grace of God. He knows his righteousness is only in Christ. Once he didn't, he put a lot of confidence in the flesh, but no longer. He doesn't boast in the flesh at all. But in chapter 3, even knowing all of that, he says, I still press on to make on, to make this goal my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call. He hasn't forgotten God's grace, but because of God's grace and the fruit of that in his life, he's pressing on towards Christ to know him and the power of the resurrection. As I said at the beginning, this is no small prayer, is it? <coughs> he wants us to know, he wants our love to abound with more knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent. You could do a little search in the Bible and see how often Paul puts love and excellence together. 
1 Corinthians 13 jumps to mind. Let me show you the more excellent way. Love is patient. Love is kind. Steve McAlpine's calling us back to what I'd say the very basics, fundamentals of Christian life and faith. Forgiveness, love, generosity, discernment. Paul's doing the same here. They might, may be basics, they may be fundamentals, but they're excellent basics. They are, they are what's best. And they are what the grace of God and the righteousness of God produce in us and bear fruit in our lives. Not so that we've got our ticket to heaven. Because all of this, as we heard earlier, is to the glory and praise of God. That our love would abound more and more. He's Lord of the harvest, isn't he? Not just of the harvest there with the wheat and the tares and send out more workers, but even that harvest, that fruit of righteousness in our lives. He's Lord of that as well. So that everything in us and through us might be to the praise of his glory and grace both in this age and the age to come. Gracious Father, we pray that with your help and by your grace that our love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that we might approve what is excellent, what is best, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. To your praise and glory, we pray. Amen.